morning, everybody. Good morning, our friends watching us on live stream. Good morning, Elias and Aliza and Michelle and Dan. We are taping this class in the Gantt Chapel on Wednesday morning, November the 1st. And I wanted to frame our class with a very personal uh, vignette, a steering vignette. Since the last time we met, uh, from last Wednesday to this Wednesday, what is new, among other things, is that the ground invasion that had been planned for and prepared for and looming is now actually taking place. And as you all know, Israeli tanks and soldiers are in the Gaza. And so I wanted to just kind of as a point of departure for our class, share a vignette, which is my nephew, um, who recently got married, uh, was with his bride in Greece for the end of the holiday season, in Greece to protect her off. And then when October 7th happened, he flew back to Israel, and he went straight from the airport to the army base uh, in, in Gaza, right near on the, you know, on the Israeli side, and had been there for three weeks. And then on Monday of this week, um, he let his parents know that he was about to go in to Gaza, and so he was going to have, uh, and that once he was in Gaza, he was not going to be able to have a, a Let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together, and then we will get right into it. 
For 18 years, the Zionist commune of Hulda and the Palestinian village of Hulda lived side by side. The utopia-building pioneers and the tradition-bound villagers were good neighbors. But when hostilities erupted after the 1947 UN partition plan, things changed. On March 31, 1948, Arabs attacked a Hulda convoy wending its way toward the deep Jerusalem, killing 22 passengers. Ben-Gurion decided enough was enough. Six weeks before declaring the establishment of the State of Israel, its would-be founder decided that the Jews must go on the offensive and conquer the Arab villages along the road to Jerusalem. On April 6, 1948, just after 2 a.m., the soldiers of the first-ever Zionist battalion left Kibbutz Kolda, crossed the Herzl Forest, and attacked the Arab village of Kolda. By 4 a.m., the village was conquered. Its inhabitants fled, and within weeks, its houses were demolished and its fields were pillaged. Much of the land of the Palestinian village of Kolda was transferred to the kibbutz. That's the first act um, in this journey, and, in this, and, and this is, uh, again, Ari Shabit's treatment of the complexity of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the impossibility of peace. Remember, the problem he's trying to answer is, why did Oslo's peace of 1993 not materialize? And he finds it in the story of Holda and Holda, Arab Holda, Jewish Holda. What comes up for you when you read the, the Act One of the Holda Holda story? What comes up for you? The first question is, you know, if they're living together side by side, neighbor by neighbor, what caused the attack? And th that's the first question. That's the question that needs to be answered. Um, it seems like everything was fine. And then there's an attack. And then there's an attack on the convoy. Why? And it just I mean, it, it, it just seems to have absolutely no logic, no reason. And I think that's, I think the crux of all of this is that the, in, the instilled hatred of the Jewish people, the instilled hatred of, of, um, of Jews coming to the land from thousands of years is something that is so visceral that it cannot be extricated. Well, you certainly have a case where, you know, th there were Jews who dreamed of peace and Jews who wanted to live in peace. Uh, in fact, after the first time that the Jewish holder was destroyed in 1929, they rebuilt it saying, we're not giving up our dream of peace. It was the second time. It was the second destruction of Holda and the 22 people who were killed in the convoy. Um, and in some ways, this story seems to be the template of uh, we want to dream for peace, but then there's attacks, war, and violence that begets more attacks, war, and violence. And then you just have perpetual violence. Um, how do you, Aliza, you know, our politics are not always the same on Israel. How do you read this story? feels um, challenging that the cycle of violence just keeps getting reignited. And um, in Hulda, I see both the, the brokenness of being attacked and needing to do something, and I have the, the question of, is, is conquering the village the necessary step? 
was there was there an intermediate step that could have been taken? Could elders of both communities gotten together and, and work together? Because this is, again, a, a whole community being punished for the actions of a small number. Um, it's it's heart-wrenching. And I, I can't imagine that, you know, to be living in a place where you can't know for certain if you're going to be safe going from one city to another, that's intolerable. And the result of constantly conquering and fighting and waging war, which is the promise of Israel, um, is also intolerable. And, and, you know, if this had gotten us to a place of peace, but we, we see over and over again, it, it just it perpetuates a cycle of violence that perpetuates more and more violence. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's unique about Archie's book is, of course, he's Jewish, Israeli, and we're American Jews, and so we're, we naturally tend to see things through a Jewish lens. Part of the greatness of his book is that he very much also manages to see it through the lens. Like, why, why is it that Palestinians would act in the way they did? Why? Right? And I want to go there for, for Act 2 of this. Um, this is page 262. Uh, this is, um, how did the Palestinians see the creation of Holda and then the, uh, the conquest of, of Arab Holda? Okay? Um, in April 1948, a Jewish army positioned a mortar by the depot's well and began to bombard the village. And the Jewish soldiers came up the path the girls used to walk with us and wore jugs of water balanced on their heads. And there was machine gun fire over the village. Jamal Munhir, so he, is, he was a kid in 1948. He's now 70 years old. And Ari Shabi finds Jamal Munhir as somebody who was a refugee from Hulda and there's a lot of poignance to this encounter. Jamal Munhir took his old mother and put her on a camel and escaped with his family to Deir Muhassin. And when the Deir Muhassin was attacked on the very next day, he escaped with his mother and family to Abu Shusha. And two weeks later, he watched from Abu Shusha as bulldozers raised his family's home in Hulda. He watched as a vast cloud of white dust rose over the village he was born in and his father was born in, and his grandfather was born in. So then Ari Shabi takes Jamal Munhir to Hulda, and they're looking at the forest. And I'm just going to read this on page 263, extremely evocative. From the ruins of the village, we drove to the Herzl Forest, that is, Ari Shabi and Jamal Munhir, and I parked by the Herzl house. As we sat under the old pine trees, a gentle wind rose and caressed our faces. All around us was the forest silence. Jamal raised his hand and pointed to the sea of land in front of us and said, This is my plot. This is my land. These are the hundreds of dunams of the Munhir family. You were a rich man, I said. Immediately, I, Arishabi, realized I had made a terrible mistake. Jamal erupted. My heart burns when I come here. I go crazy when I come here. We were respected people. Englishmen and Jews and Arabs listened to us. Our words carried weight. But today, who are we? What are we? Beggars. No one listened to us. No one respects us. We, who owned all this land, don't even have one grain of wheat, only a UN refugee certificate. He went silent. Under the old pine trees, the only sound was that of my small tape recorder recording the silence. Until Jamal turned to me again, crying, saying 
that from the beginning of time, his forefathers lived here and died here and were buried here. They plowed the plot of land for hundreds of years. From this old well, they drew water for generations until the Jews came to Hulda and wiped out the Montier family, until the Jews conquered and pillaged Hulda. Where is Rashid, Jamal cried, and where is Mahmud, and where are all the village people? Where is our Hulda? By the way, this is not an easy class, um, but if, if we want to understand why our children and our Israeli children are leaving their lives and in Gaza now, like my nephew, we have to go here. What, what comes up for you when you look at this story from the point of view of a Palestinian who lives in the land like Jamal Mahmoud? Well, let's begin by saying that, at least this is my opinion, when an enemy attacks you, you don't think very highly about that. Okay? But when you read things like this, you are able to realize about the suffering that they also, you know, went through. So, um, it's, it's obviously, any, any person, human being, who has any kind of compassion and, and good sentiments, identifies with the suffering of these men who says, you know, my grandparents were killed, my family owned this place, and it has been taken away. So obviously there is suffering there. But then we have our own suffering as well, and we have our own issues, and you know, at the same time that this was happening, in so many Arab countries, the Jews had to, to leave because they were persecuted and they had to immigrate to Israel. They were living in peace until Israel state was declared, and they had to leave. So, has been always suffering on both ends, and uh, well, it's part of the conflict. I, I was just thinking about how very this, this story is, you know, for my son's bar mitzvah. We've been studying now for almost three years of Torah in in depth, and one of the stories that's told there, of course, is about Abraham buying the land to bury Sarah, which is used as kind of our biblical proof text. See, we belong here. See, we we bought this land. And that that's how this story of Hulda started, right? We bought a plot of land. This was a legitimate space and and, and it was it was where we have a right to be. And then it triggers this kind of violence that we see in the Torah. Right? If I was writing the story of the Torah, like I would have wrote a very different story when it came to the land of Israel. I would not have included, you know, then the Canaanites were still in the land, you right. know? I would not have included, then we we were required to go and conquer. I, I would have, have written a story about Abraham who purchases his plot and then his children purchase their plot and they live happily and peacefully ever, but that's not our Jewish story, not since the very, very beginning. Witness the fact that the name of the land in the Torah is not Israel, but Canaan, because the Canaanites lived there, and Israel came and settled it and took it and had to win it in a war from the Canaanites. Uh, Aliza, when you when you when you encounter so that is of course true in the Bible, but now when you read about a real living, breathing person to whom this happens, what comes up for you? Well, we skipped over uh, Jamal when he was speaking about 
his awe and appreciation for his Jews who were his neighbors. And it feels to me like the anguish and pain of that moment triggered a response of, of revenge and conquering and violence that maybe wasn't necessary and maybe there was an intermediate step that could have been taken, that, that it was a collective punishment that was inflicted on this whole village because of the actions of a few. And I don't know what their investigative ability was then. I don't know if they had the capacity to do that, but it does feel like there was, it was not just one story going on in that village of the story that wanted to seek destruction, that wanted to, to kill the Jews. It was, it was a, you know, a few, who knows how many people, but, but a small number of people. And, and instead of dealing with that small number, we, we raised those villages, conquered those villages, and, and created, perpetuated this cycle yeah, of violence. Yeah, but throughout history, unfortunately, um, a lot of innocent people pay the consequences of, of bad decisions by the government and by the leaders. One of the one of the conclusions of Ari Shafiq, and let's let's turn to it now, and it, and it builds Aliza on your on your comment. I mean, what I what I hear in in your last comment was that there could have been a more hopeful outcome. There could have been a different outcome. This perpetual war is not inevitable. It was a choice. There there would have been a way if this had been tweaked and that had been tweaked on both sides. We could have actually lived in peace. And you know, and and would that were so. Who knows? It's above my pay grade to judge such things. But I'll just, uh, what I want to offer now, and actually, Lisa, I'll ask you to read it, is what Ari Shavit, having studied Holder, Tati Shmormun here, etc., his answer is that continued war is an inevitability. That the notion of, of peace, like, why did peace from the Oslo handshake not happen? Because it could never happen. And his answer is it could never happen because of Holder. So if you'll pick well, up. Also because of 1948. Well, 19, not, right, well, Holda is 1948. Right, so he's, uh, so just to frame this, right, Holda is part of Israel's territorial land from 1948. It was not part of the 1967. Um, and Ofer, which he's going to compare it to, is, uh, is a community that Israel conquered in 67. So, Aliza, if you could pick up on page 265, the bottom, where he says, it's Holda, stupid, not Ofra, but Holda. And then just read the next three paragraphs. It's Hulda, stupid, not Ofra, but Hulda, I tell myself. Ofra was a mistake, an aberration, insanity. But in principle, Ofra may have a solution. Hulda is the crux of the matter. Hulda is what the conflict is really about. And Hulda has no solution. Hulda is our fate. Our side is clear. Kibbutz Hulda's intentions were not malevolent. It did not wish to dominate. It did not seek to exploit or dispossess or supplant. All the Hulda pioneers wanted was to form an intimate community. Their dream was to gather a family of 40 or 50 free individuals who would work the land in partnership and equality and commune with nature and thereby prove that it was possible to cure the diseases inflicted on the Jewish people by diaspora life. They sought to offer a way out of modern man's crisis of alienation and subjugation to the machine and plant the soil of Hulda, a new beginning of harmony and justice and peace. Could we not have come to Hulda? And then when war came, could we not have fought for our lives in Hulda? Could we not have sent our soldiers to conquer the neighboring Arab village of Hulda? Could we not have taken the villagers' houses and fields? Could we not have hardened our hearts and treated our neighbors brutally and brought calamity upon them? 
kick off. Their side, too, is clear. Could they not have protested our penetration into their valley? Could they not have attacked and burned and destroyed our colonial agricultural farms? And then, a generation later, could they have prevented the brutal attack on the Hulda convoy that was part of an inevitable war? And after their catastrophe, could they not have hated us for conquering their village and taking their fields and sending them into exile? And can this hatred ever be overcome? Can the Palestinians be expected to give up the demand to see justice done for the village of Hulda? Can anyone expect the children and grandchildren of Jamal Munhir ever to accept the fact that we build houses on their ruined homes and we grow six varieties of grapes in their pillaged fields? One last paragraph. What is needed to make peace between the two peoples of this land is probably more than humans can stomach. They will not give up their demand for what they see as justice. We shall not give up our life. Arab Hulda and Jewish Hulda cannot really see each other and recognize each other and make peace. Yossi Said, Yossi Beilin, Ze'ev Sternhel, Menachem Brinker, Avishai Margalit, and Amos Oz put up a courageous fight against the folly of the occupation and did all they could to bring about peace. But at the end of the day, they could not look Jamal Moon here in the eye. They could not see Hulda as it is. For the most benign reasons, their promise of peace was false. Okay. So, what's your read? You know, your penultimate comments have been perpetual war is not inevitable, it was a choice. Um, Ari Shavit seems to say perpetual war is inevitable given the realities. Um, are you convinced by what he writes, and colleagues, are you convinced by what he writes? Do you think that what uh, he says is true? I have, I'm sorry, colleagues, but I have a very radical view on this. Um, Golda Meir famously said, we will make peace with our enemies when they will love the children more than they hate us. Okay? I don't see, you know, what happened with Hamas and the attack? I mean, do they, are they questioning themselves? Are they saying, could have we done differently to achieve peace? I don't see any of this happening. I see only hatred on one side, and we are the only ones, I'm talking about the Jewish people, question ourselves how we make peace, how we make peace. They don't want peace. Sorry to say so all this. No, but sorry, Eli, to so you're, you're sorry to be one-sided, but no, it's my feeling. But Eli, so that what I hear you saying is you basically agree with Ari Shafi's conclusion that perpetual war is inevitable. Because... Yeah, but I don't, I don't agree with the fact that you say we cannot look at their eyes, in their eyes, because their promises of peace were false. I completely disagree with that. Well, I love Israel as much as the next guy, but it's pretty clear that we took their land, so they hate us. And uh, no, 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 that, no, 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 I'm, we're talking well, about this, we're talking whole, about this whole story and yeah. Abraham's whole story says right. it is much more complicated than that, right? Well, we bought land originally, and then oh, we, and we tried to you're create... Forgetting, you're forgetting something no. that is crucial. I mean, what happened during a thousand years with David and Solomon when in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem? What happened with the Muslims? They didn't even exist as a religion. I'm not denying so that we got. Can I, can I pull I'm not denying how, that we have wait, an ancient connection. It all depends. Yes. When do you want to start the line, the lane, the line of 
food to the lantern. Right. Can I want us back to, to the this? conversation? Yes, yes. thank you. So thank the, I, I think that um, last Shabbos, we had Jonathan Ornstein here from right. the JCCs in Poland. And what really struck me, right, you asked a question for which he didn't have a great answer, which is how did this happen? How He said that in Poland today, you will find one of the safest communities for Jews, sadly, around the world today. That anti-Semitism now rising on American college campuses is, is um, just light years away from what they're experiencing in Krakow, which is absolutely impossible for us to have imagined even just a few years ago. And you ask the question, well, how did that happen? And he said, I don't, basically, I don't know how it happened. I know that it happened. And so when you ask the question about Ari Shavit's ending here, um, I think based on current facts, based on every fact that we have experienced in our story, in their story, all the way along, it's hard to imagine how, how one group manages to move towards peace. But we know that such things are possible in the world. They do happen. And, and the great challenge of our history is figuring out how to get there and how to get there alive. And by the way, how to get there with our morality. Because justifying the kind of act that happened on October 7th is never going to get us there. And not being able to see that the, that the Palestinians um, who are not aligned with Hamas, those who are not aligned with Hamas, let me be clear, um, are also humans who also suffer. But how do we hold both of those things? Okay, so let's, this is the perfect segue for the Moshe Dayan uh, Gettysburg Address. Um, so, Michelle, would you read that? This is on page 267. Um, uh, just if you start at the top of the page and then read through the Moshe Dayan. The one Israeli leader who saw with cruel clarity what I now see in Hulda was Moshe Dayan. In 1956, at the funeral of the young security officer Roy Rotenberg, who fell patrolling the Israeli-Gaza border, Israel's then chief of staff said the most sincere words ever spoken about the conflict. Yesterday at dawn, Roy was murdered. The quiet of a spring morning blinded him and he did not see those who sought his life hiding behind the furrow. Let us not cast blame today on the murderers. What can we say against their terrible hatred of us? For eight years now, they have sat in refugee camps of Gaza and have watched how before their very eyes, we have turned their land and villages where they and their forefathers previously dwelt into our homes. It is not among the Arabs of Gaza, but in our own midst that we must seek Roy's blood. How did we shut our eyes and refuse to look squarely at our fate and see in its brutality the fate of our generation? Let us today take stock of ourselves. We are a generation of settlement, and without the steel helmet and the gun's muzzle, we will not be able to plant a tree and build a house. Let us not fear to look squarely at the hatred that consumes and fills the lives of hundreds of Arabs who live around us. Let us not drop our gaze lest our arms weaken. This is the fate of our generation. This is our choice, to be ready and armed, 
tough and hard, or else the sword shall fall from our hands, and our lives will be cut short. So, um, Moshe Dayan says this in 1956 about a death, a, a murder that occurred outside of Gaza, um, and in post-October 7th, where so much death happened in that same area, this short teaching got resurfaced as a canonical Israeli text. So, Michelle, what do you think Moshe Dayan is saying? Uh, do you agree with it? And where does that leave us now? I mean, I, I think he's saying this is, as he does say, this is our fate. This, this is, if you want to live here, here comes with hatred. We can't unwind the hatred. We can't sing Kumbaya together. The, the story, the wounds, the pain goes too deep, and we can't expect that they're going to let go of their narrative of pain and hatred. That's, that's a given. That's a given. And therefore, we have to be tough. We have to be strong. We have to attack. I mean, uh, arguably, one could say that there are many <laughs> currently in Israel who are implementing exactly this idea, right? The only way to prevent an attack like October 7th is to be strong. If we are not strong, if we do not put this to bed, then we can expect more of the same. And therefore, it, you know, whatever you feel, whatever your compassion would inspire in you, the only action that will save your life is to pick up your arms and go to war. Michelle, I have a question. Have, have, Michelle, do, do you agree with do you agree with Moshe? So, I, I mean, interestingly, as I think about Jonathan Ornstein, I think about Poland, and you ask how did anti-Semitism get rooted out in in Poland? I mean, part of the answer to that is that the war was done, right? Part of the answer to that is that those who who were the the champions of the greatest anti-Semitism the world has seen until now um, were, were defeated. defeated, right? So one argument is exactly Moshe Dayan's, which is the only way to create that 50 years later is to have a sound defeat. First victory, then peace. First victory, then peace. And, and I, you know, I don't know enough about political science to know whether that is indeed a path that actually works um, it, it seems to work in the case of Poland. I don't know how it applies elsewhere with the rabbi. But, I, but I, I, that is certainly one approach. In my heart of hearts, I wonder whether there are... Um, I, I'm sympathetic to Mika Goodman's idea that, you know, if only we could somehow, somehow find a way or a path to say... I get you, and you get me, and we're not going to agree, but we have to find a way to tolerably live together in this land. I, I liked that idea, right. and, I, and I'm sad to see that idea. Shrinking so. the conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elias and Dan, how did you guys respond to the, the Moshe Dayan? Uh, I, I think Dayan is right, and I think Shavit is right. Um, and I don't for a second believe Jonathan Orenstein when he said that anti-Semitism is mostly done in Poland. I think I think it's um, I think it's retracted, hidden, but there. I mean, did you think six months ago or a year ago or two years ago that there was um, rapid anti-Semitism in America? Did you 
that at Cornell University somebody would be making the case to decapitate the babies yeah. of Jesus. Did you think that was that was something that, that would be happening right. here just like that? Right. It didn't happen just like that. It's been there the whole time. It just needed a, a slight impetus. So I Dan, do you agree with my booby who survived Kishinev? My booby came to America after Kishinev. She survived Kishinev. Kishinev left the lasting scar. This is not politically correct, but she said it, and uh, I grew up with this, that when you scratch a Gentile, you get an anti-Semite. That was just how she was raised based on her experience of living in the Paola settlement. Um, do you think that today supports that very grim view? Maybe not as extreme, but yes. I grew up with it. You did. So, Elias, how do you, how do you respond to this teaching of Moshe It's Dan? very current. Moshe Dayan's work on what's happening today. Today, yeah. Okay. And um, I don't think I agree with you, Michelle, about the fact that uh, winning the world will eradicate the, the issue, the hatred. But this is the condition of, of the Israelis. Yeah. So I believe I want to close, close with you, but, but let's just go with the fact that what he is saying is um, obviously is in some deep way true then the question is, where does that leave us? So that leaves my beautiful, beautiful 30-year-old uh, nephew leaving his wife, leaving his job, leaving his home, and it leaves him in Gaza. And it does that for so many Israelis, right? Perpetual, right? If you don't have your knife and your helmet and your muzzle, then you can't plant a tree, you can't build a house. So, Alisa, will you just read the last three paragraphs of this thing from page 267, and then I want to ask you to respond to it as the years went by. I wanted to, but first I want to just respond because I think there is um, a crucial difference, Michelle, I'm grateful that you brought the historical context of uh, Poland and Germany. I think there's another crucial difference. It's not just winning the war, but another crucial difference is that we had another place to go and, and those that left were able to escape. And, and I hear Jamal Munhir's words that we had respect and we had a place and we were seen and we were regarded and we were able to leave Germany and leave Poland and leave and, and build new lives and build a, a, a respectful place. And Arab communities have prevented Palestinians from getting out of refugee camps in how many countries? And they prevented them from having health insurance or having job possibilities. And all of that feeds this in a way that we, that, you know, w peace was possible because we had an ability to move forward. And the Arab community has forced Palestinians to stay in this conflict in a way that is really challenging um, and, and compromises any possibility of change. And I, I think that's also just an important factor that it's not, and it's not just on us, and I w that feels like a really important point that's, that's not. And that incident, by the way, is also extremely current. I mean, Egypt, as of you know, yesterday, is saying, Palestinians, you cannot settle this. Right, we do not want your we do not want your refugees from Gaza in our land. Thank you, Alisa, for bringing that up. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I, I want to just say it feels important that um, this was something I was talking about with my father-in-law, who was who was talking about um, they were learning about the history of Lebanon and 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 all of the insensitivity to which generations later those children are still not able to join society, and. That makes a big, if, if, you're, if you never have a chance of getting out and you never have a chance of making a new life, it's a very different, and, and that's, I think, the challenge for me when we go back at, in time, it was a different world then. There, there was a different possibility. 
It didn't have to be that these people would be trapped, still in refugee camps. It didn't have to be that we were constantly living by violence. There was, for us, for a second, the possibility of figuring it out. And I think, you know, we we came to the land as such a traumatized people that I'm not sure we were in a balanced enough place to evaluate, like, in that moment of deciding on Hulda, were we really thinking through all the options or were we so blinded by our own pain that we lashed out, which was totally a legitimate response. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that they they should have been superhuman and not had any feelings and not reacted with violence. It made sense. They were hurting. And I think it's really important that that, that that's different. And I think what I, what I read in Moshe Dayan is also a difference, right, then – it's farther along in history. It's not. It's not the choices that were made in 1948 and 1949. This is. This is years later, and it's. We are resigning ourselves to this choice, and and coming to the conclusion that we're never. We're never going to be able to choose that. And I think that's just important. And and we're in a very different place. Uh, different place now. And right. And one, just one thing I wanted to just to close on one thing. Yeah. One little thing. Going back a little bit. And thank you for bringing all this. Um, I believe that peace is possible. I strongly believe that peace is possible. But that doesn't mean that with that, we're going to eradicate racism. Okay. I just want to say one thing, uh, Aliza, and then ask you to finish this up. Um, and this, I don't think, gets said enough, and it can't get said too often. In 2005, the Israeli government withdrew from Gaza, the Hidden Prison. And so when people say, oh, it's an open-air prison, or it's an open-air cemetery, we're just the walking dead, okay? That, don't blame Israel for that. We actually got out in 2005. Sahal actually had to use force with a threat of force to, to evict Jewish, Jewish Israelis who were living in Gaza out. 8,000. 8,000. And we left them our buildings, like the synagogues that they could repurpose as mosques or whatever. So we left them world-famous tomato fields. And what they did was they destroyed our buildings, they destroyed the tomato fields, and they launched all these wars and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of missiles. That's on them. That's on them. We actually got out of Gaza. That's on them. And that seems to be a cardinal fact. So in terms of is peace possible, like we got out of Gaza and we got five wars, uh, query whether peace is possible. Anyway, could you please read the end of the, paragraph, of the, of the chapter? As the years went by, Dayan's insight has been dimmed and forgotten. Israelis could no longer bear its cruel wisdom. The six-day war enabled us to escape its piercing sagacity. The right nurtured its self-righteous illusions. The left was mesmerized by its own moralistic illusion. And for two generations, the sin of Ophrah obscured the sin of Hulda. But Hulda is here. Hulda is here to stay. And Hulda has no solution. Hulda says peace shall not be. I descended the hill to the well, the vineyard. It's so beautiful and calm here. But the soil is hard. The land is cursed. For it is here, in the valley of Hulda, that history's door creaked open on April 6, 1948. It is precisely here, at the end of the Herzl Forest, that the Jews crossed the threshold between the commune's olive grove and Jamal Munkir's field and entered the forbidden. After 1,800 years of powerless existence, Jewish soldiers employed a large, organized force to take another people's land and to conquer dozens of villages, of which Hulda was one of the first. Here, by the old well of Hulda, 
We moved from one phase of our history to another, from one sphere of morality to another. So all that has haunted us ever since is right here. All that will go on haunting us is right here. Generation after generation, war after war. So this chapter, which is entitled Peace, 1993, ends with conflict from generation to generation, war after war. Um, and that, that is where we are today on the third week and third day of this war. Um, where does that leave you, dear Carla? Do you, do you feel, do you fear that Ari should be, if sadly correct, um, and, or not? And if so, where does that leave you? I said a little bit before, uh, regardless of my opinion of what I think about the solution or, or the origin, this gives me an idea of seeing something that I neglected before. What did you neglect to see before? The suffering of, of the Palestinian relocation. Yeah. Well, I think history certainly tells a long story of an intractable challenge um, in order to live in the land since the time of Abraham. We have had to um, fight, we have had to protect, we have had to defend. Um, and, you know, I, I hope in the possibility that creative, thoughtful, and we also believe in redemption. We believe in a land flowing with milk and honey. We, we believe in the possibility of, you know, the, the Jerusalem that we imagine up here coming down to the Jerusalem that really exists here in the world, and that a city and a, and a place that has been the source of so much conflict and violence for so much time can be called the city of peace, right? There, there's that, uh, all of that that goes on, and, you know, Elisa, you brought up the Arab lands, and to me, I, I, w I would love to think that somebody could be creative uh, enough at some point in time to be able to lift up the partnership so that Jamal Munhir's descendants could have a sense of um, self-determination that, um, that we want for, for our people as well and that our people can live safely within their land. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happens. Um, but Dan, any closing words? What do you walk away from this exploration of Moshe Dayan and Ari Shavit? Yes. Um, I just think, well, what Michelle said, we're, we're stuck in an intractable, seems a seemingly intractable moment in history, and that I'm always an optimist, but I'm a little bit more fearful these days. Aliza, what do you walk away with? I walk away holding the brokenness of a, of a cycle of violence that's been going on for thousands of years. And, and also still holding optimism and hope that we never imagined what Germany or Poland could be today. Uh, you know, that was, my grandfather had a rule, no German products, ever any no German products and no German cars, and I mean, it was, for him, that was, that was Amalek, there was never any possibility of redemption, and 
today Germany's a really different place, today Poland is a different place. And I, I hear that, the, again, you know, the cautionary note that maybe there's anti-Semitism lurking, but the lived experience is really different than what our ancestors could have imagined. And so I am putting my faith in an Israel that's really different than, than the villages of Hulda could imagine and the Israelis of Hulda could imagine. And I'm putting a, a hope in a future that, that we don't have to send our young people after their weddings through the tunnels of Gaza, wherever they, where there's a way for um, all of us to live okay side by side. Well, as you know, since the war began, I've never ended a single class with a positive, upbeat message. I've never tried to gift wrap and put a bow on things that don't have a gift wrap and don't have a bow. And this class will be part of that same formula, uh, the same pattern. I'll tell you what this leaves me with, which is a grave um, discomfort with the grave asymmetry between our children and Israeli children. Um, I mean, I have children the age of my nephew who is who's right now in Gaza, and I'm obviously so relieved that my son is not in Gaza, but it's just for the quirk of history. I mean, I see both of us, that is Israeli Jews, American Jews, as part of the Jewish story. How do we function in this world with anti-Semitism? And um, it is because of the, it, it, those Jews who are Israeli Jews, their children are subject to the Moshe Dayan prophecy slash curse. You shall leave Greece and you shall go straight to Steyros and then you shall go straight to Gaza and don't collect $200 and don't go home and Lord knows what will be on the other end and say goodbye to your parents, your spouse, and your siblings. And our kids get up and they go to work. And our kids get up and they go to college. And so the lack of a bow and the lack of a gift wrap for me is that there's just this asymmetry for which there is no answer other than continuing to pray for our beloved brothers and sisters and cousins who are on the front lines in Eretz Israel. Thank you.